This podcast is proudly supported by Drama Victoria. Consider becoming a Drama Victoria member today to take advantage of the many member benefits. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land this podcast was recorded on. We record on the land of the Bunurong people and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we're speaking with two members of the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child's creative team, John Shearman, Associate Movement Director, and David Spencer, the Resident Director. Today we will discuss the production from a theatre studies perspective, so we may leave the gushing about how magnificent this production is off mic. That being said, this marvellous production has created true magic on stage and is an incredible theatrical achievement. The fact that Australian cast and creatives were part of remounting this worldwide phenomenon is a testament to our love and passion for creating innovative and meaningful theatre. This episode includes parts of the interview that are more tailored towards Unit 3. I do suggest you listen to the entire interview, as some questions do overlap. But here are just the Unit 3 questions as I see them. Without further ado, I bring you John Shearman and David Spencer. Welcome to the podcast, John Shearman and David Spencer. Hi there, thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. I really appreciate your time. It means a lot to us. Uh, we're going to start by talking about Unit 3 Theatre Studies questions. Um, so how was the context of the original script interpreted in this production? This could be about editing the script from a three-hour version or how, sorry, two or three-hour version or how specific stage directions were changed. You could talk about how Harry's memories were omitted or perhaps how you increase the focus on specific relationships. How was the context changed? Um, so in the conversion from one part, is it sure? Yeah. yeah. You, do you mean in the conversion from the two parts, the one part production? Absolutely. Yeah. Or, yeah. or in any other small or subtle way. Workshops took place in London a couple of years ago um, with some of the London cast. And they, I think kind of everything was on the table from what I gather. Um, it was a more of a, let's see what does work and what doesn't. There was a bit of a trial and error. Um, and that process itself was refined in each production that was wound out so um new york was first to convert to the one part and um then san francisco and then we were here in melbourne and each time that was refined um so new additions were made to the script new cuts new edits um and choreography and sections and sequences changed and orders changed as well um and it was just about the trial and error about finding what worked best for the piece and what gave it the most um flow from what I gather. And I, I agree with what John said. And I think also a, a big part of that change was the fact that the time that had uh, elapsed since the first workshops of the original production and a post-COVID world were, was a significant length of time. And I think there had been significant social changes during that time. And I think it gave the original creatives an opportunity to perhaps put forward their original intentions of the story in a world that had become more open to hearing a story about the wizarding world that included a relationship between uh, Scorpius and ours and uh, where we could perhaps be a bit more economical knowing that we'd had a further almost 10 years and and people had an understanding of that wizarding world and we could perhaps not 
show them that story again through flashbacks, but actually uh, consider some of the story assumed knowledge. So we could be a little bit more economical in telling the newer story. Yeah, and that might be in relation to Harry's memories being omitted. Do you think that's a key example of that? That's exactly right. I think the 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 flashbacks into Harry, Harry's memories were fantastic. They were a beautiful part of the production, a really popular part of the production. But um, I think in the end, they were probably just that. They were they were icing on the cake and they didn't really advance the story. They gave us a chance to really reminisce and, and enjoy those older characters, but it didn't really take the story in um, a new direction or or add to the story that was being told today. And um, so, you know, really just from a from a practical point of view, it, it was easy enough to to cut those out and just stick to the, the, the newer story that was being told. I think the adaptation allowed certain relationships to be developed further though. Um, like Albus and Scorpius, I think the way their relationship in this production is depicted in comparison to the one part, in comparison to the two parts, sorry, is um, a lot deeper and richer. And I think as, as David was saying, like that, that decade that's passed has allowed um, certain aspects of that relationship to be highlighted on stage more so than they would have been originally. Yeah, it was, that was really evident in, in watching and comparing the two parts, absolutely. Um, we talk a little bit in theatre studies about recontextualizing plays or modernizing plays. And to a certain extent, the, from the, from the, going from the two part to the one part, uh, the play has been modernized to be clearer about Albus and Scorpius's budding relationship. Uh, there are other key moments that you think have been updated to fit into modern Australia? Well, that's a good question. Mm. Um, I, I do, I do think, I, I do think so, but I also think perhaps in some ways more could be done for that. I think there's a real, um, there's a real sense of being able to show that relationship, but there's also a movement in language um, that is a little bit more modern. I think if you go right back to um, the first and second books, I think a lot of the dialogue from that time is really quite um, quite different to the language that's used by the, the modern characters, um, the, the language that we hear, the younger characters um, speaking on Hogwarts Express, uh, in the Quidditch pitch, in the maze, um, all of those sorts of things. Um, I think it, in, in a in a really basic language sense, I think it, it, there's a lot of modernised speak that um, shows the story moving in a, in a forward direction in a more sort of modern way. I, I think too that originally when we started performing this piece, the play was set in the future and now we have passed that time period where the play is set and it's now <laughs> um, a historical piece, I suppose. It's set in the past from where we are. And um, I think there are certain aspects of the production that I look at now and I go, oh, I see either the language or the costuming has dated it and made it of that era. Um, particularly the costuming around Delphi. I find that really, for me, that shows when the production was made and, and um, set, shows the setting a lot clearer to me now in the, in the future. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with, with John. I think Delphi stands out as one character who really um, makes a statement of, of, about exactly where this particular story is, is set. And when 
she was first conceived you know it was it was quite a sort of futuristic look of this bird-like creature with with blue and silver hair and um, that was very much sort of part of the the budding sort of fashion at the time and now looking back uh, it, it, she she almost dates dates the piece in in a in a visual sense mm. um, fur, further on to the question you asked though I think the other thing that I think is really um, has modernized this piece is is a very and I know we use these words as sort of buzzwords quite a lot but it's a very sort of inclusive piece as far as looking at characters who are from a variety of cultural backgrounds it was very much the case that there were you know we we had um uh Padma and we had Cho Chang and we had um some characters who were definitely not um just uh, a, an Anglo-Saxon group of people but I think there were definite decisions when the story became one um, of a new generation that, for instance, you know, Hermione being cast as a woman of colour was a was a big story at the time. And I think that continues to evolve to be an example of increased demand for and increased desire to show inclusiveness as you look at the productions around the world and have people from different cultural backgrounds playing all of those different roles, including in our production. No, thank you so much. That's you know, fantastic examples of how the production has been modernised, how this interpretation um, uh, uh, is taking place in the modern Australia. Thank you so very much. Um, so from my point of view, the time turner, when it's used, the stage transforms in a way that no other production has managed and creates a true and real sense of magic. I mean, these theatrical, this theatrical moment stays with the audience for a really long time. That's a really transformative use of theatre technology, all these different things coming together. Why do you think theatricality is so important to the work, making the impossible possible? What elements are at play without being too specific and obviously ruining the magic in this time turner moment where we actually, the stage literally seems to morph and shake. It's incredible. Is it simpler than we think, more complex than we could possibly ever know? Is there any information you can give us on this exceptional moment of theatre? I think there was a real need for magic to be apparent as part of this production. You know, obviously we're talking about a magical world, a, a fantasy world, but for it to really truly translate into a, a piece on the stage the audience had to believe in some of that magic. So there had to be some experiences and that's experiences visually and also physically that made them doubt what they were seeing and question what they were seeing as being understandable, as, as being true natural experiences. And, and without going into exactly how those moments were created, I think there's an intentional visual uh, trick in there but also the great sort of sonic and, and vibrational sense that goes through the theatre which almost it, it's an unsettling uh, sensation for the audience you know there's that real bass sense that you can feel shake you internally and it makes you just momentarily question what's happening and I think that was a really intentional way of trying to break down that uh, traditional uh, sense of theatre and make people really question what they're experiencing 
hopefully make them um, really not understand it and, um, and have that sense of magic. And look, I think while we've got the, the bells and whistles, like the technology which helps advance that and show the audience what we want, um, we also rely on really old school theatrical technique in the show. Lots of um, magic and illusion stuff that comes from, um, from Thordville. Um, or I, it, a lot of magicians will see the show and maybe be, be able to pick a few bits and pieces. But um, I think what we do so well is we layer it. There's so many things happening at once that um, even those best magicians don't see everything. <laughs> they don't get it all. Um, and I think in a world like Harry Potter, which is so established and everyone uh, gets out there in the zeitgeist and everyone has an image of it in their head and it, um, like the films are so ubiquitous, um, that there was a sense, I think, in the show that you kind of have to match that. Um, other shows, um, they show the convention. Um, I don't know, like Warhorse toured here last year and you see everything in that. You see the puppeteers, you see them manipulating the object. Um, whereas in the world of Harry Potter and the world that's kind of established in, in the community's our, our mind, uh, we've, got to, we've got to match that, I feel. And um, I hope we do. <laughs> Oh, you do and then some. I know I'm only talking about the time turner moments where time literally transform, trans, transforms on stage, but there are so many beautiful moments and that idea of layering is is tremendous. Um, theatre studies students are asked to talk about theatre technologies, um, mechanical, electronic and digital, and they're asked to separate those and think about them in terms of the production that they saw and how theatre technologies were applied. And I think in this, in this case, there's a lot of... A, some guesswork about, oh, I think that might be happening and that's layered upon that. And while that's happening, this thing might be happening or this hidden device. Uh, so it really is a, an exceptional show to make you believe in magic. It's really, truly wonderful. So I'm just wondering how you think uh, production and design choices, uh, costume, lighting, sound, direction, acting, enhance the audience's understanding of a main theme of the work? Or another way to ask that question is, what do you see as a major theme of the work? And how do you think this is emphasised in one key scene, like multiple areas of production working together to establish a clear moment or theme? For me, the passage of time is a massive part of the show. And it's wound into the design, woven into the design of the show. You've got the clocks there set in the set, um, the time turns. And also when we begin the play, the, we start at platform uh, at King's Cross Station and time is frozen. Um, everything is frozen. The sorting hat's hat is floating in the air. All the suitcases are still. And the sorting hat comes out and restarts everything. And for me, that's kind of us picking up 20 years, 19 years later after leaving Harry in that final book. Um, time stopped for the audience, time stopped for the reader. Um, and this is kind of the production's little way of going, here we are, we're picking back up where we left off. And from that point on, we manipulate time throughout the show. We have these moments we call bullet time, um, where uh, in the campaign room with Snape, um, Scorpius and Hermione and Ron, um, when Scorpius is explaining <laughs> how he got there in the world and um, how he got to their world, um, we speed up the music and we have the lights strobing and everyone moves in um, a really stylized way. And that's to show almost as if you had a camera above the space or in the audience and you've just pressed fast forward because we know what's happening as an audience, but we're just quickly showing it and skipping to the next vital bit of information. And I think that's one part that the show does really well. It, um, of course, it's skipping back and forth through time, but we're also 
crunch, um, truncating and crunching time for the audience to show what we want when we want, and then we extend it in certain parts. Um, for me, that's one of the major themes of it. And also, um, how do you deal with that? Like Harry is dealing with the passage of time as a, as a father and um, having aged into this role and not really sure of, um, he's not really sure of how to go about it. You know what I mean? He's not doing the best job. Um, and also he's reflecting back on the things, the traumas he experienced as a child and how they didn't maybe really prepare him for fatherhood in the same way. So I think for me, um, time and the passage of time is a massive part of this show. Thank you. Incredibly clear examples of time there. Um, David, is there a moment that you wanted to mention or talk about? Uh, no, I think it's, it's um, there are so many themes and sort of picking them apart uh, is, is a challenging thing to do. I think there are, John sort of touched on it just a moment ago. There are so, there's so much, um, as is the case in a lot of Jack Thorne's work, so much about parenthood and, and comparing different childhoods and, and our own experience of our childhood compared to that of our parents and, and our, our ability to relate to our children, the changes with time that is very, very clear in, in this story uh, as, as, you know, as another one of those, those stories. So I think the first thing I thought of when you asked that question was that we are we we're dealing with this central character who has been an orphan and uh, is negotiating parenthood and and a relationship with his family without the um, experience of, of 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 having parents aside from these sort of uh, time based um, experiences where he's been able to in the wizarding world go back and and see his his family or or, or be visited by their, their you know their their spirits i guess um and the first thing i thought of was just this idea of of interwoven uh relationships between parents and their children and and the trauma associated with that the the, the scene that jumps into my mind is albus's bedroom um, near the beginning of the show where uh, Harry comes in and is really trying to um, connect with his son and and offers him a, a practical pre present of the blanket he was wrapped in as a child and uh, and we set up this idea of these two these two characters this father and this son who really are not meeting each other and not seeing each other and hearing each other and uh, just all of the symbolism that we have within that that moment of them sort of sitting on this uh, on this bed, offering each each other ways into each other's world, but not really hearing that, and um, and seeing how that uh, then results in in this conflict, then propels the story onwards. Um, so much of what Harry does for the re remainder of the story. Uh, that we see is is trying to make amends for what was said in that moment and Albus trying to come to terms with the fact that his father's human um, and uh, yeah so I think that's one theme that that I see is being really prominent throughout the story we have a lot of different parent-child relationships thrown up against each other we and we are forced to compare those and um, 
and see, um, you know, see how flawed these sorts of relationships can be and see ways of, of um, making them work. I wonder if we can uh, pivot to thinking about how language is used in the script to convey the playwrights or the director's intended meaning. Um, so the script has changed a lot to make the relationship between Albus and Scorpius more clear. Uh, the meaning of the work has become not only about accepting the past and your present, but also about accepting who you are and being loved for it. What do you think are some key moments that you think exemplify this or even key lines or bits of dialogue from the script? Uh, the first thing that jumps into my mind is just the relationship between Albus and Scorpius is never really talked about directly until the final scene. We we have a feeling that something is going on. You know, they 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 immediately have this um, this real ease with one another from the Hogwarts Express one where they they meet and um and scorpius is so disarming and 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 albus chooses to stay to later on when we see the the tension between the two of them and and it's only through through really um challenging moments that they're forced to actually verbalize what's going on um you know when when Snape and Scorpius are uh, are outside of Hogwarts and the Dementors are circling. It's only at that moment that moment when Snape says, "Who are you fighting for? Who are you fighting for?" This is a life and death situation. And Scorpius says, "Albus, I I think it's Albus." Um, you know, there's a real sense of our difficulty in being able to verbalize what we're feeling, a reluctance to verbalize what we're feeling, and um, uh, a, a fear of doing so, and later on, um, you know, in in the in the church, even Ginny, who knows that um, Albus and and Scorpius have um, this incredible um, friendship and and burgeoning relationship. Even she has difficulty verbalizing it for him and says, you know, I can see you found wonderful clarity and it makes me very proud of you. But we're still not saying what it is. And even on the stairs, the final staircase, um, you know, we're we're in a situation where 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 Rose says to Albus, you know, this is this is only going to be weird if you if you let it be weird. Are you okay, Albus? And once again, there's a real difficulty verbalizing it. And finally, we see Albus in um, Beautiful Hill saying to his dad, you know, Scorpius is the most important person in my life. Um, and he may always be so. And and we hear, um, you know, we hear Harry say, and, and you know, and and I think that that's a good thing. And And that sort of sense of acceptance it's just such a long, painful journey that I think a lot of people in the audience can relate to. And by drawing it out in that way, I think it really enhances the importance of that relationship, the difficulty that's still faced by people with um, this sort of, in this situation. And, um, and it just makes it all that much sweeter to finally have that sort of sense of acceptance that we can move on from this and we're moving on to a better place. I think Jack Thorne's 
choices as well in the way he's structured the play and, and the language he's chosen to use um, really helps in that way too. Like Jack, Jack comes from a TV background and I find that a lot of our scenes are written like, like a TV show. You pick up, um, you don't get an introduction to the scene like you maybe do it in a traditional play. You pick up in the middle of the action um, in each scene um, and the actors are, there's not really much subtext going on. They're saying they're, what we like to say a lot is the thought is on the line. The actors are synthesizing and saying the lines as they get the information coming into them. So there's not a lot of um, tactics or sub subtext happening where they're trying to win or get something. And I think that's um, at times it's really different to traditional thing like Greek, um, like Greek theater or Shakespeare. We always say, Oh, that character comes on and goes, Oh, that thing happened off stage. Whereas in our show, we show what happened on stage. We show it happening and the actors respond to it in real time. Um, so those language choices are something that just allows the audience, what, the actors are kind of saying what the audience are experiencing at the same time. Um, and I think that Jack is really clever in that and he's chosen a lot of modern colloquial, colloquial language that... Um, allows our audiences, particularly a lot of people are first time theatre goers, it's pretty disarming. It allows them to come in and just, and take it on it. You consume it like a TV show. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's a terrific to watch and, and be part of and hear that language being used and helping us experience that along with the characters on stage. I couldn't agree more. Um, from, I mean, I'm just talking from an audience perspective that we picked that up. We see that it's working. It's working. Hmm. Uh, so are there clear examples, do you feel, of elements of theatre composition in the piece? I mean, motion is used throughout, and you talk about it beautifully, to establish mood and setting and character. I mean, look at the contrast between the start of Act 1 and the start of Act 2, Hogwarts, in these two alternate worlds. Um, can you talk about a moment where rhythm was really important? Um, things that jump out at me are perhaps the maze scene on the Quidditch pitch, or maybe the energy of the race mixed with the quiet moment between Cedric and Albus about his father. Do you think rhythm plays an important role in this piece? I, I think it does, and I think particularly in, in storytelling moments, um, we use rhythm to get a sense of excitement um, and an, a, a sense of um, of um, really allowing the um, experience of finding a solution to be that much more apparent to the audience. The first thing that I think comes to mind is when Scorpius and Albus are in Godric's hollow and they're lost without a time turner you notice that that scene starts off so so they're so lost they don't really they're they're, they're looking for a solution they're they're almost at the point where they think we, we may be lost and we may be lost here forever and then we see them work together and, and Albus having the realisation about the blanket which hasn't been touched in his room since he he left and coming together with Scorpius to work out that um, if um, demiguys and the, the love potion come together, they burn. And um, so that, that realisation of a solution, you notice that the tempo um, of that scene uh, goes from sort of this slowness to this clunkiness to this really fast rhythm and um, 
by the end of it, we have this absolute sense of excitement because there's this possibility of, of a solution and, and them being saved. And I think they do that really, really cleverly with, um, with the script. Look, I think rhythm, it, it, like the whole show, we rely a lot on it. And whether it's about us, about the cast coming together and the crew coming together to decide what the rhythm of the show is. Like one example of that is the end of act one, um, after the Dementors have flown, and the big Voldemort banner has come in and there's a little sign flashes up to be continued to let the audience know that we're coming back for act two. And in the old two part, that meant go away, have dinner, come back for part two. <laughs> um, but the debates that raged in the auditorium during tech about when that sign was to flash up, because what it is is about pulling the audience along with you and building the excitement in them as well. So they've just had this incredible sequence with Dementors flying overhead and they all go crazy. Um, and there was a bit of trial and error to find when is the best point so to bring up that to be continued because we know that's going to set them into overdrive again. So you've got to let the audience kind of crest that wave of excitement and then it goes up to build it again. Um, and that, ha that happens a lots of different points throughout the piece. So finding the exact rhythm of an effect or a, a movement sequence or um, even the delivery of some information to the audience. Like you, you're teasing out, you want the audience to be hanging on your every word. So if you're going to suspend the moment and then deliver the information, um, there's a lot of trial and error, but that's usually the way we go. <laughs> it's about bringing the audience with us. Beautiful. Um, this is our, our final question. Uh, so thank you so very much for your time today. Um, how do the actors, in your view, demonstrate the theatrical style of the production? And if we want to talk about other elements, we can. Do you think there is a defined theatrical style here beyond eclectic theatre using elements of lots of different theatre styles? Yeah. Is magic realism intentionally used, gothic theatre, something else? Look, I think we draw from a lot of different styles in the show. Like there are moments that like vaudevillian, um, moments are almost like um like the traditional fourth wall proscenium arch theater but then we also draw a lot from magic <laughs> and magic and illusion shows um and i i think that it's 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 more of a that all comes together to create unique style that is harry potter um without drawing from all those different places we wouldn't have that unique experience you have um and there are certain moments in the show where uh I've had to talk actors into <laughs> going with that style. Um, there's a moment in the ministry corridor where we really break into farce, um, where Harry and Hermione they had that body double switch and the other actors come on stage. And it, a lot of actors early on didn't really want to go down that path because it doesn't feel, it feels a bit naff at times um, to lean into all that really physical stylized comedy where you're looking left, right, up, down. Um, and it, it's about, getting the actors comfortable enough to understand that this play supports that um, and that the writing supports that and the style of it, it's actually got quite a wide bandwidth of what is acceptable within the world. Um, and those moments, if we can bring them out and highlight them, just add to that eclectic nature. Like I think that's the world of Harry Potter. You've got those eclectic teachers at Hogwarts. Everything's a bit off kilter. Um, and I think that really works in the performance style. And further on from that, I think what's really important in this play is, you know, it, it, it is a fantasy. Um, 
at heart, you know, there's there's nothing more exciting than for for an actor to be given permission, I think, to wear a cape and and to hold a a, a stick and be a, a powerful wizard. Mm. But there's so much in really imbuing that with um, a sense of realism as well. So we we create this this fantasy. We do all these um, magical tricks. But then in the middle of it, we come back down to just your basic naturalistic acting examples being um, the bedroom scene with, with Harry and Ginny, um, the, the, the bedroom scene with, um, with Albus and Harry, and then later in the Slytherin dorm with, with Harry and, and Albus. You know, we, we go back to really simple, traditional, realistic moments, which then I think make us believe more the the fantasy ones showing that these are actually actually real people who just happen to have extraordinary powers and I think that makes the whole story that much more credible Uh, and I think that's a real intention in the piece as well to show the fantasy but also really um, anchor it down in in true problems and and truthful acting I think that's also too, we, we always show the muggle world as being really kind of plain. Or anyone who's a muggle in this show is just really boring and not interesting. They don't even have dialogue. Um, and <laughs> that, then we get to contrast that with the wizarding world, which is so open and expansive and has so much variety in it. Beautiful. Thank you so very much for these extraordinary responses. Thank you um, for thinking about them so deeply and providing such specific examples. It means a lot, and I have no doubt it's going to help the students studying theatre studies at the moment. Thank you so much for your time today, John Shearman and David Spencer. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Huge thanks to John Shearman and David Spencer for giving us their time today. And a big shout out to Lily Everest, who made this conversation possible. There is still time to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, so book your tickets. There's a link in the episode description if you're keen. That is all for this episode of The Aside. There are a bucket load of episodes to listen to if you're interested, so feel free to go through our over 350 episodes to find one that piques your interest. If you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, or if you have a question for us, feel free to email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you hugely to Hey Livery for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Thank you to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>